Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to episode 116 of All About Fitness. Before I get into the introduction for this episode's guest, I just want to say thank you to those of you who've recently left comments or recently given reviews to All About Fitness. You know, I don't do this for the advertising. I don't do this for the glory. I do this because there's a lot of bunk out there, and I'm trying to bring you good, insightful, knowledgeable information about fitness and how you can use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And that brings me to this episode's guest. Now, to be 100% honest, I really hadn't heard of this of this guest. I really haven't heard of my guest until I saw some stuff that he put out on Twitter. And I did a little digging and I found out he writes sweat science for Outside Magazine. On this episode, I interview Alex Hutchinson. He wrote the book Endure about endurance training. Now, Alex has a really unique background, or actually I should say Dr. Hutchinson has a really unique background because not only is he a writer, which is what he does now, but he has a PhD in physics. <laughs> you know, this is a smart dude who, you know, started down that path, but got more into writing about exercise. So when he writes the sweat science column, and I'll have a link to, to some of his columns below in the show notes, he really takes a different and interesting look at it. And so the funny thing is I saw what he, a couple of things he posts on Twitter. I had a little interaction with him. And I was like, yeah, this is somebody, I don't know him. You know, a lot of times on this show, I have people that I know professionally or socially as guests, but this is one of the times where I'm like, I need to have somebody who has a very different understanding. Besides being having a PhD in physics, Alex was a runner in the Canadian national team. So he has a background as a high-level competitive endurance athlete. That led him to this book, Endure. And I, we talk about his book, we talk about his findings, and the really cool thing that Alex did was Alex got a chance to do a little bit of work with the Nike, Sweat, the Nike Sports Science Institute. Nike keeps it very close to the vest. They don't open up to a lot of people. And one of the cool things about the book is you get a little look behind the curtain of what Nike does. After a brief word from the sponsors of All About Fitness, Hyperware, the maker of Sandbells, and Terracore Fitness, it really is a lot of fun to sit down and get to know somebody new. Alex Hutchinson, the sweat science columnist for Outside Magazine, and the author of the book, Endure. Mind, body, and the curiously elastic limits of human performance. Are you looking for some great, versatile fitness equipment to have at home? Well, check out Softbells by Hyperware. Softbells combine the best of sandbell training, yet softwells are specifically engineered so you can turn them into dumbbells, a barbell, or even a kettlebell. So if you're looking for a really cool, fun way to exercise at home, in a way that in, with some equipment that's easy to store and put out of your way, then check out Softbells. I have a set of them here at home, and actually I keep them in my bedroom near my stationary bike because both my wife and my kids love use them. Not just me, but I don't mind my kids picking them up because guess what? They're made of sand, so if my kids drop them, it's not going to break their toes. Softbells allow you to build dumbbells, build a barbell, they even have a kettlebell handle, so you can do a variety of exercises for strength, core strength, mobility, power, or just to burn a few extra calories. Go to hyperware.com and check out Softbells by Hyperware. Use code AAF10, that's code AAF10, to save 10% on the purchase of Softbells for your home. Now, in my 20 years as a fitness professional, I've been approached by many companies asking me to review their product, to recommend their product, and more often than not, I take a look at what they have to offer, and I just kind of say thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in working with any company or any product that I don't believe in 100%. So when I saw the TerraCore, 
I immediately knew right away this is a product I wanted to work with. The cool thing about the TerraCore is that it's an inflatable bench. That's right, folks. The TerraCore was designed to be a bench first, and the inflatable cushion in it allows more range of motion from your body. When you lay on a normal bench, the bench restricts motion in your shoulders and can compress your spine. But laying on the inflatable, the inflatable side of a TerraCore allows a little more range of motion in your spine. It doesn't put the direct pressure on your spine and your shoulder blades. So if you're looking for a great piece of equipment to use at home, not only can the TerraCore work as a bench, but it can also work as a balance trainer. It can work as a core trainer. You can lay across it and train your core in a variety of different ways. And you can flip it upside down and, and use the handles to do a number of creative drills for the upper body. The TerraCore is one of the most creative, versatile tools I've seen in a long time. So it's really an honor to be working with them. I do a little consulting with the company as a director of programming, and I'm more than happy to have them as a sponsor of the All About Fitness podcast. Go to TerraCoreFitness.com, check them out, and you can use code AAF10. That's code AAF10 to save 10% on the purchase of a TerraCore of your own. My name is Pete McCall. This is All About Fitness. I'm speaking today with writer, author, outdoor adventurer, Alex Hutchinson from Canada. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and your background in fitness or in the exercise science community? Sure. I, I guess I, the, the, the main title I would give myself is I'm a science journalist. I write about uh, research and evidence and things like that. And my, my particular focus is kind of endurance, health, and fitness. Uh, I've, I, I currently write a column for Outside Magazine called Sweat Science, where the the, the basic idea is just looking at new studies that are coming out or evidence and questions and trying to understand what we know and what we don't know about, uh, you know, any sort of question about, uh, like I said, health and fitness. Although my, my, my personal background, which I should mention is I'm a, I'm a runner and I, I, uh, uh, former national team runner for, for Canada. So my, my bias is towards endurance. I, I tend to write a lot about, uh, endurance sports, running, cycling, and also about sort of outdoor, you know, backpacking and things like that. But I'm, I'm interested in all of it. And, and I'm not, a I, I'm not a, a fitness professional. I'm a, a guy who talks to fitness professionals and to researchers to understand what it is they're doing and to, to try and convey some of those messages to the general public. Well, that's excellent because what I try to do with this podcast, Alex, is try to educate the general public. I like to call it the NPR fitness podcast because I want to have a little bit higher level discussion. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really trying to get after those those, uh, you know, I'm in my mid forties right now. And my, my goal is to try to help people over the age of 35, learn how to enjoy their favorite exercise activities into their advanced years. Is that something that, you know, that you write about in your column? Yeah, for sure. And, and as a guy who's entering my mid forties, I, uh, you know, that, that mission seems all the more urgent, you know, it was great when I was, you know, 21 and I could go and play whatever sport I wanted and, and it just seemed like fun. But, uh, at this point I, I you know, I look around at my, uh, at, my friends from, from university and beyond and, uh, people's, people's lives are starting to change with, uh, with, you know, career and family responsibilities and their, their bodies are starting to change and, and their activity patterns are starting to change. And, uh, you know, one of the big things that I have looked at a lot is what, what is aging? Like we, we all know what the difference between a typical 55 year old and the 25 year old is, how much of that is, is sort of, the inevitable ticking of the clock and how much of that is changing of lifestyle? How much of that, you know, are we getting slower and weaker because we don't exercise or move or, or stay active as much, or is it inevitable? And of course, you know, not to, not to give away the answers, but, uh, I, I think we've, I think we've greatly overestimated 
how much of physical decline is inevitable with aging. And, and a lot of it is just that we, uh, we, we have to find ways of staying active and continuing to be as active as we were when we were 15 or 21 or whatever the case may be. Well, it's interesting. It, you know, I want to stay on this for a second because I, when I when I speak with younger students and, and I, I teach uh, part-time in a community college, my advice to them is just never stop. It is absolutely just you can slow down. Life is going to get in the way. And, and that's one of the reasons why I started this, started this podcast. In all honesty, Alex, is I, I was getting two, maybe three emails a month from college friends or people I played rugby with over the years. It's like, I got out of shape. How do I get back in shape? And then my number one advice is don't let yourself get out of shape or, or you know, no matter what, stay, stay active, stay active with that. And, and I want to ask you a quick question, you know, to kind of, to go into like your interest level in this, you're a physicist by education, correct? Uh, that, that's true. I, I, I started out, I did a PhD in physics and then I, I worked as a physics researcher until, uh, until I was 28 actually. And then I decided, it's too too hard and not I wasn't passionate enough enough about it so I, I made a switch to journalism at that point but yeah I started as a, as a physicist well I think that's such a, so when you're I mean when you did that obviously you're you're an athlete you're because you grew up as an endurance runner you know in high school and college correct yeah yeah I was I was a runner right from the start and what was your distance what was your or what is your favorite distance when you were competing uh probably my best distance objectively was the the mile or the 1500 meters um which is you know it's about a four minute race um so it's you know relative to things like marathons it's it is quite a short race i I also did i've done longer races and i ran you know 5ks quite seriously too but uh yeah i I think of myself as a miler uh by sort of that's that's what my physiology intended me to to emphasize cool and i want to come back to no one of my early podcasts one of my colleagues that that i work with is a woman named uh, Sonia Frandul, and she's, I think she has a world record right now on the indoor mile. So she's, uh, I think she's just moved up. She's in the 47 age bracket and she's been ripping up on the U S master athletes. So it's interesting. I didn't realize that you you ran that middle distance. What's the most challenging thing for you uh, about running the mile? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. You know that it's, it's, I was just having a conversation with uh, someone earlier today who had, had just run a 50 miler. And he was an ex-miler in college too, and he was trying to articulate what the difference is between running a mile and, and running a fifty-miler, and and they are very very different. Uh, the the mile is, you know, my first the first what how I would have described this for a long time is I would have said the mile is really painful. It really hurts you. Uh, once you get to the third lap or so, it's just like you every core of your of your being is trying to tell you to stop. Um, after writing the book that I just finished writing, uh, trying to understand the limits of endurance, I would actually make a distinction between effort and pain. And so the pain was the pain is bad when you run a mile, but what's really through the roof is your sense of effort, and uh, which is what what researchers just define as the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop, because your legs are just not work. They stop working. You're, and it feels like you're running through like uh, like cement, and yet you have to keep up the pace if you want to run a, a good time. So there's there's a real intense struggle in the mile that you don't get even even with a marathon, which is much more of a slow burn. The mile is you're you're you know you're being dunked right in the in the deep end, and it's uh, it, you know it's funny. I, I I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine it right now to explain it, and it's like. You can't remember what it's like when you're not there, and that's, that's like one. It's just like the human. It's it's an important part of the way the mind works. Is we can never remember the really painful elements because otherwise we would never do them again. 
So uh, well, anyway, that's a, that's a vague description, but it's kind of like I'm hoping I hope I conveying I'm conveying that it's a it's a real like it's a real challenge, and you can squeeze as much effort into those four minutes as you can into a three hour marathon. Well, and I think that's actually an interesting look at it because you probably without realizing any any successful and whether it's a mile or, or fifty, I think any successful successful athlete. I was going to say endurance athlete. But I'm going to take a step back and say any successful athlete probably has that ability, Alex, to shut off that mechanism where their brain tells them to stop. And you've, as you've been looking at this and for your book, is that is that a common denominator that you've seen um, among various athletes? Is that ability to kind of just put aside for whatever it is, whether it's physical, physiological, psychological, is that a common denominator? The ability to kind of set aside that that brain mechanism saying stop and they just kind of over override that yeah absolutely and and what's interesting so there's there's lots of uh, research looking at this and showing that you know athletes tend to have they, they feel the pain feel, feel pain the same as everyone else they're not like immune to it but they're able to just deal with it for longer uh, or or you know uh, deal with higher levels of of discomfort and to me what's really interesting is that it this is a trainable trait that this isn't just something that some people are born to suffer. It's like if, if you do a couch to 5k program where you start training, we all know that your muscles are going to get stronger and your heart's going to get stronger and so on. But what's also happening is you're increasing your ability to tolerate discomfort in a way that's transferable, transferable to other areas of your life. And it's something that you, even among well-trained athletes, their ability to tolerate discomfort kind of waxes and wanes over the course of a season, and it, 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 it's at its highest when they're when they're right close to their goal competition. So we, it's it's not something you learn once and you're done. It's something you're constantly developing is this ability to just be comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, and and that to kind of ties in. What I want to come back and, and ask you about your study of physics because you know when you look at the basic you know equation of it, you have your second rule is what f equals m a. And you extrapolate that out, you have per power, you know, you have work equals force times distance, and then power equals work over time or force times velocity. Is your experience as a runner, did that kind of help you go down? Was that was that one of the motivators that kind of helped you go down the path of physics? Was trying to get understand how to get more, how to do more in, in a specific period of time? It's it's interesting. You know, for a long time I I I didn't really look at I didn't really think about connections between physics and sports. And when I did, I think my experience in physics led me to, to want to see sports in that way as a, as a mathematically calculatable thing where you can, you know, if I knew uh, all the, the parameters of my body, I could calculate what my limits were and find out whether I was running to my potential and the evolution has, for, for me, has actually been away from that to realizing that, uh, you know, my ability to, to run a 1500 meters or to do any other task isn't something I can calculate in the lab, that it ends up depending much more on some very um, hard to measure or hard to quantify to, uh, elements of my, you know, of my mind and my, my psychology that, of course, yeah, you have to understand what the, the sort of basic constraints placed by physics on you are but uh you know it was it was sort of for me frustrating for a time that it's like i could never predict what i was going to run you never you could never just sort of say well i know my vo2 max and i know my lactate threshold and i know my running economy therefore i should be able to run x for a race and, and so i you know all that 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 aspect or that way of thinking about performance i think is interesting as a starting point but it's it's uh 
it's incomplete. You can't. You, it, it turns out that it's it, you, you can't predict who's a winner just based on the 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 sort of the forces and vectors that that, that you calculate from their for their body. Well, and that's interesting. That brings to mind one of your recent columns that that, that I read through in preparing for this, Alex, was you talk about the psychosocial relationship, and that sometimes perfectionists seem to get more injuries. You know what what is that? What are you referring to? And, and why would a perfectionist be at a at a higher risk of injury? From, from pursuing an activity. Yeah, this was really interesting to me. That, so there, there was a study that was presented at the American College of Sports Medicine uh, annual meeting, and it's just preliminary results for now, but um, they they took a, 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 a college cross-country team and they gave them a psychological test at the start of the season to identify which of them had a sort of mix of, of perfectionist striving and, and worrying too much about mistakes and doubting themselves, but but setting really high goals and then they tracked them through the season to see, well, which of these runners are going to get most injured? And, and there was an enormous difference that the runners who had strong perfectionist tendencies were way more likely to get injured. Now, in a sense, you might say, well, this, this is silly. If they're perfectionists, they should be uh, really good at you know, taking care of the details and, and uh, you know, understanding when they need a break and, and uh, you know, uh, doing their rehab yeah. exercises or their stretching or whatever the case may be. Um, really diligently, but in fact, what seems to be the overriding thing is if they're perfectionists, they're they're driven to perform more and more, and they just always have the sense that uh, you know if they can train a little more, that they'll be able to be a little bit you know perform a little better, and that they can they can you know brush off any little uh, aches and pains they have, and it won't come back to haunt them. Which which is turns out not to be true. They, they, they the actual stat was they were 17 times more likely to get injured than the the people without these perfectionist tendencies. So it's it's kind of a reminder that it's that in a sense the body isn't just a machine. You can't just uh, you know calculate the correct inputs that my body needs 48 miles per week at such and such a pace, and therefore I'm going to do that. You have to be constantly responding to the 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 surroundings. And it may not be that it's you know it may be that you're you have an exam that week and so you haven't got as much sleep as you need, and so that's. The, the sort of external factor that that's saying you need to run less mileage this week, but if you're if you're too focused on the goals and on the outcome, you're not able to to pick up those those warning signs. That's interesting, and because this is from I haven't really worked with with super high level athletes. You know, I've been a personal trainer and commercial gym for for much of the past twenty years, and and I really I liked what you wrote, and I liked the fact that somebody researched that because it's been my observation in a gym setting, and much more so. I used to live in Washington D.C. and and Washington, D.C., you get a lot of type A perfectionist personalities. And I made a pretty good living, you know, helping, you know, repair runners, helping them, you know, work around or get through or rehab from injuries that they got from exactly what, what you describe is that uh, trying to do a little bit more, trying to fa- go a little bit faster. Because I think our mentality is, and this is much more of an American thing that, you know, you being Canadian, you, you probably see it from a distance, is Americans, we think that if, if a little bit is good, then more must be better. So American runners, I think, would tend to go at a higher volume or push a faster pace to try to get more in. You know, and then another column to juxtapose this is where I'm going with the question, Alex, is you talk about recovery. And what was your what has been your experience in in learning, writing about recovery that's helped change your your kind of opinion or your your thought process as a runner yourself? Yeah, re- recovery is this huge, huge, huge kind of 
rat's nest of of beliefs and and theories and and evidence and of course we're all interested in it right like cuz like you said we we all kind of want to do a little bit more be able to push harder and yet be ready to do it again tomorrow or the next day and so if if an ice bath or if compression socks or if a massage or you know an antioxidant or well, you know, you name it. There's a it's a it's a billion dollar industry, right? Of 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 uh, products marketed to to that claim to make you recover faster. And as an athlete, you're always looking for these kinds of things. And so when I was competing, I was always I was taking things like ice baths, and uh, because you know it's like they feel like they're doing something. And you know, I was a full believer in ice baths as an athlete. As a science journalist, as I've tried to look into the evidence, I, I've gone. A few phases, uh, you know, and the, the first phase is you, you you look at the evidence and it's like there's basically no good evidence that things like ice baths work. And there have been literally hundreds of studies of ice baths trying to understand whether they, you know, reduce inflammation or accelerate muscle recovery or, you know, whatever the case may be. And the, the, the evidence is always very equivocal and it's always confounded by placebo effects. And so you can you can get to a point where you're like, this is all a bunch of crap. Nothing works. Forget it, you know, like it just, just, uh, you know, get a good night's sleep and, uh, you know, make sure you eat dinner and, and that's, that's all you can do. These days I, I'm, I, I take a, a more nuanced position because it is, it's very hard to, 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 to measure what athletes care about, which is whether they feel better and can perform better a day or two later. And, and I mentioned, you know, the problem, the placebo problem. So you, and and let, let me give you a specific example of a study that I thought was was pretty interesting. They they had athletes do a hard workout, so they were going to be sore the next day. Then some of them took an ice bath. Uh, some of them took a, a sort of warm bath, just kind of or body temperature bath. So it's, they got the same water, but not it wasn't cold. And some of them took the warm bath, but they were given some special recovery oil, which they were told would make the the warm bath just as effective as an ice bath. And so. The results found that over the next couple of days, the athletes who had the ice bath recovered more quickly than the athletes who had the warm bath. But the athletes who got the recovery oil in their bath did just as well or maybe even a little bit better than those who had the ice bath. And the, the, the catch is that the recovery oil was just bath soap. So it's like, so you, on the one hand, you, you have this result saying, well, ice baths are no better than, than you know, soap. But in, on the other hand, you have this result saying, well, both ice baths and soap were better than nothing. And so it's a placebo effect, but the athletes did recover faster. You know, something's going on in their brain or their, 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 uh, you know, their, their sense of belief is creating, making them act in a way that's, that's allowing them to, to return to, to full strength more quickly. So what do you tell to an athlete who wants to recover? Do you say, don't do anything? And then their competitors are getting an advantage over them, even though, even if it's a placebo, placebo effect. So and and then you know meanwhile there may be some real effects too like you know ice baths do have you know anti-inflammatory effects and things like that so this is a very long-winded answer but I guess to 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 kind of sum up what I'm saying is I think uh, most of the things we do or spend money on you know you can you can spend you can you know rent time in a cryo sauna for tens of that that costs a hundred thousand bucks or whatever and will flash freeze your muscles. There's very little evidence that that stuff does much, but there's very strong anecdotal evidence that athletes who do things like take ice baths or get massages feel better and feel like they're recovering more quickly. And that's not something to be 
to be laughed at. So I so my 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 bottom line advice is I don't think you need to worry or or go around chasing the latest recovery technology if you're taking care of your nutrition and your sleep and and your and you know programming in enough recovery into your into your training plan. But I, I'm not. I, I'm no longer going around saying, or I'm not going around saying, never do any of this stuff. It's all. It's all a fraud because it's pretty hard to figure out what it is that's working and not working for people. Well, it's interesting you say that, and, and this is going to come back to that discussion about mental. Like, how much of this is really mind over matter? And the one thing that we've seen over the last number of years is that there's been, like, you, as you mentioned, there've been a number of re- recovery products introduced to the market. I remember, you know, years ago in 2011, I started doing a talk at various fitness conferences called you know, Recovery, the Forgotten Variable, just about how we need to start remembering to, to coach our clients about recovery strategies. And at, at that time, maybe there might be one or two recovery. They're like foam rolls you know, for self-mild fascia release and one or two other things, but they weren't really being promoted as, re, as recovery. Now, this past year, when I went to the National Strength and Condition Association, I went to their annual meeting, their annual conference, probably 30 to 40% of the goods for sale two strength coaches who work with, with athletes of all levels were recovery focused. So it really is it's interesting to see how that, how that happens. Do you think that that kind of ties into this belief that, that our mind might be the more, most important muscle in our body? Well, I, you know, I, I would say that the growth in the, the, the number of products is actually kind of riding on the opposite. It's, it's kind of saying it's all about your body. If you can make sure your muscle fibers are, you know, adequately hydrated and whatever, you know, not inflamed, that's going to be the magic. But where I think the counter message is what you're saying, which is that actually recovery is less about, you know, using the 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 magical infrared recovery device or whatever it is, and more about getting into a good state of mind after a workout, getting some recovery, not being stressed out, you know, so that you're not sitting around with elevated cortisol levels 24 hours a day because you're you're never giving yourself a chance to to sort of decompress uh, and get a good night's sleep and, and and you know eat and drink and all these sorts of things so I think to, to me the real uh, you know the part of the recognition of the mind's role is the recognition that taking care of the basics the things like sleep and 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 nutrition and stuff, isn't just about the body; that it is also about getting yourself in a good mental state, uh, and and making sure that you're allowing your body to t- to recover uh, under its own steam. Uh, that that's maybe more important than than what some of the sort of e- external recovery aids might be able to do. Well, and I think that that actually kind of ties into it because if somebody you know pays a hundred dollars you know for a pair of compression tights for for sleeping, or if they buy a foam roll and spend twenty minutes you know, rolling on the ground in front of the TV in the evening after after a hard workout, I think just the fact that they feel like they're doing something for their body would probably be just as important as, as what they're actually doing. Would that seem to be what some of the evidence, you know, supports? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think first, first of all, like, the, you know, if you commit to commit to doing something, whether by, you know, whether it's painful or whether it costs money, you, uh, you, then you're you're going to recognize the power of that intervention much more so, and it's going to have a more powerful effect on you. And also, it just it's you know in some ways it's about creating a routine, and you know you, you make that foam rolling part of your routine. Uh, you know maybe the foam rolling is good, but maybe just thinking about recovery. You know that becomes part of your routine, and if it's if you're if you're focused on recovery, it also 
reminds you that you should also get in some calories and, and, you know, get to bed and all, all these other things. Like, so you just become more mindful of the whole process. So I think, you know, probably the, the good thing that has come out of the, the sort of hype that around recovery that has, that has come up is that, uh, people are more aware, like you were saying in 2011, it, recovery was the forgotten variable. I think people are much more aware of recovery now. Uh, and we, you know, whatever path they, they go down, hopefully they're, they're making some changes that they can believe in and, and that also are going to lead them to be more recovered rather than just not thinking about it at all. Like you said, well, that's, that's kind of, you know, that's an important thing because that brings it into, you know, into what I want to talk about with your book. How'd you get started? I mean, obviously if you were, uh, you know, if you're a miler, you know, kind of, you know, your middle distance is kind of that fine line. You're not doing, you know, you're not doing a 400 or 200 where you're really working on power and, you're not doing a marathon. What got you interested in, in the topic of your book and, and what, what exactly, what, what does your book cover and what's it entail? Yeah. So uh, the book definitely comes out of my experiences as a runner and this sort of, for anyone who's pushed their limits, you kind of, you want to know, like, did, did I get it all? Did I, you know, have I run as fast as I could have run or was, or, you know, is there more in the tank or was there more in the tank? And if so, how do I, how do I get there? And so I started off with this kind of question of just wanted to understand why, you know, as, fa- as fast as I ran, why couldn't I run faster? Um, and, and, or could I have, and I just didn't. And, and so the, the focus of the book was basically try to understand what, what is, when you push yourself to your limit in any context, when you, when you reach that point where you feel like you just can't continue or you have to slow down or stop, what is it that, that defines that, that limit? And, and, you know, at the start, I started out with the, with, like I was saying before, the sort of mathematical assumption that you can calculate your limits based on the properties of your heart and your lungs and your muscles and, and so on and so forth. Um, but what I, I, you know, starting about 10 years ago, when I started writing about this area, uh, for my, for my columns, uh, I, I, I discovered that there's this whole, a uh, relatively new and still controversial area in exercise physiology that's trying to incorporate the brain and trying to understand what role the mind plays. And, and to me, that was really fascinating to learn that, you know, there are studies showing that, for example, subliminal messages can alter your endurance. You're, you're on a bike, someone's flashing pictures of, smile, of smiling faces or frowning faces just a few milliseconds at a time, so you can't even see them. But the smiling faces will, will increase your endurance relative to the frowning faces because they're generating a kind of sense of ease in your brain that's changing how your brain is interpreting the signals from the rest of your body, from your, your heart and your muscles and so on. So discovering that there is this stream of research that shows that actually it's the mind that calls the shots when, when, when you're reaching that, that breaking point was, was fascinating to me. And that's where I ended up. That's the thread I ended up following in my book is just trying to understand, um, you know, what, what our limits are and in various contexts, whether you're climbing a mountain or free diving or running a marathon, uh, how does you, how does your brain uh, influence your limits, and and are there ways that you can that you can change that? Well, I like that I like that concept of it because that ties in a lot. You know, I've interviewed uh, previous interviewees include Joe Decker, who set the world the Guinness Book of World Record for the the world's fittest man, and he's he's won. I don't know if you know what the Spartan Death Race is. He's won he's won the Spartan Death Race two times. I mean, if you're you're a sick individual, if you enter it, and you're a little bit deranged if you finish it, but for him to win. It's mind blowing, and when you talk to people like that, and when you talk to like special, you know, special operations, you know, teams from the military, they kind of talk about being able to disassociate and go their happy place. Is that an important part of this? Is that kind of what this is looking at? Is how can we 
find our happy place when we're really in a lot of physical agony through exercise? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different psychological coping strategies that people come up with when they're trying to learn to push back their limits. And, and, you know, one of them is definitely like disassociation and, uh, you know, distraction, just not focusing on it. It hurts. So think about something else. Um, for real top performers though, that they, they can't just check out. They also have to be, you know, and there's some pretty neat studies of people like Navy SEALs, you know, in brain, in brain scanning studies, uh, at UC San Diego, actually, where they, they put people like Navy SEALs or elite adventure racers in a brain scanner, and then they do have them do cognitive tests, and then they then they put them in a stressful situation by by restricting the flow of oxygen that they're breathing and stuff. And what's interesting is that when the when things are going crazy, like when they're in this restricted breathing scenario, the uh, the, the uh, elite performers like the Navy SEALs they're able to not go haywire. They're not totally flipping out and focused on the, the problems. But the rest of the time, when under sort of normal operating circumstances, they're actually in a state of higher vigilance in terms of monitoring the signals from the rest of their body. So it's this balance where you want to be able to not focus on the pain, but you have to, in order to perform well, you have to be very closely in touch with your body. You have to understand how you are feeling. Uh, so, so you can't just ignore your legs. You have to know how your legs are feeling but not let it not focus on the discomfort and also take out the emotional elephant as uh, an elephant. That's a funny type of, or a funny uh, <laughs> Freudian slip uh, the emotional element uh, sometimes feels like an elephant that's trying to sit on you. But, uh, um, and this is where we get into things like, you know, people talk about mindfulness these days. Of course, it's a huge buzzword that's maybe been a little misused, but the idea of non-judgmental awareness. So I know that my legs really, really, really hurt. But I'm not crying about it. I'm not screaming about it. I'm just aware that this means I'm going at a pace that I can't sustain forever. And I, so I need to be aware of, of how I'm feeling, but I don't need to emotionally react or overreact to it. So, so it's, I, I would say that to, in answer to your, to your, to your question is like, yes, being able to get away from the pain mentally and, and get into a happy place is really important. But there are more, there, there's some more subtle skills to it that, that also have to be involved that you develop again through through repeated exposure to discomfort. That, that's You said that, and I think elephant's an interesting slip because, you know, the elephant in the room that we're talking about is, you know, for years we've been studying human physiology. We've been studying muscles, muscle fibers, you know, how does oxygen transfer? But I think the elephant in the room that many sports scientists have missed have been that psychological component. It, could that be maybe what you meant by <laughs> by by your <laughs> that That is the elephant. Yeah, I mean, the, the simple picture that I – is the sort of – potted history that I would give is that the 20th century was all about understanding the human body as a machine that you're, we're trying to, you know, just like you understand a car, uh, you know, how much gas is in the tank and how much air is in the tires and so on. And you can tell you, you can sort of figure out how far it's going to go or how fast it's going to go. Uh, the 20th century was all about understanding things like VO2 max and, and muscle fibers and, and lactate and things like that. Um, and and then in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a r real shift to try and understand, to, to try and say the brain isn't just something we add on at the end, that it has to be, we have to include the brain in our understanding of, of what it means to, to, to endure. Now I should, I should hasten to add that this doesn't mean that, you know, scientists in 1950 didn't think that the brain played any role in endurance. Of course, everyone understands that the brain is, is a key part, but I think in the last, you know, the, the 21st century approach is that 
it's trying to understand really uh, put the brain right in the in the picture as opposed to kind of thinking of it as an add-on at the end. That you know, and I think you're right. I think we've seen a lot more of that understanding, whether it's visualization or meditation, or, or, or playing that role. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about what it was like to to work with the Nike Sports Science Lab because, as you mentioned, not many people get to kind of peek behind the curtain. What what was that experience like, and, and what what did you learn from from working with those folks? Yeah, so they were, you know, just to give some context, they they were putting together this big attempt to run a sub two hour marathon, which they called the Breaking Two Project. Um, and and they had it ended up last May, so just over a year ago, they they hosted a race at a Formula One track in Northern Italy, where uh, Elliot Kipchoge, who's the uh, Olympic marathon champion from Kenya, he ended up running a marathon in two hours zero minutes and twenty five seconds. So he just missed the two hour barrier. Uh, he was about two and a half minutes faster than the current world record. His race didn't didn't count as a world record because he uh, he had some pacemakers that were jumping in and out of the race, which is not allowed for for world records. Um, but anyway, it was this big project where they'd spent multiple years, you know, maybe about three years to, you know, they were undercover for a couple of years and then they were just, you know, announced what they were going to do with six months to go. And, and, you know, probably millions or, at least, or maybe tens of millions of dollars on this attempt. And so it was a really interesting chance to see, you know, what happens when, when you say, okay, we want to help someone run as fast as possible and we're willing to do anything to pull out all the stops to, to, to do whatever it takes to, to enable a fast race. What are the things that matter? And, you know, they, they, there was, there was definitely some interesting technology. Um, you know, they, they had some new shoes that, uh, that had a carbon fiber plate embedded in the, in the midsole that's supposed to make the runners more efficient. Uh, you know, they really fine tuned the course. That's why they were at a, a, a formula one track to make sure there were no sharp turns and no Hills. Uh, they had this, they had six pacemakers running in a very specific arrowhead formation, mm. uh, with, they had lasers on the ground to, to being shot from a Tesla pace car in front of them to show the pacemakers where to run. Cause they had this formation that was tested in wind tunnels and with computational fluid dynamics. So wow. sort of really worrying about the details and, and all that stuff was interesting. And that's what I spent a lot of time writing about. Uh, I would say a year later when I think back of like what, what made that event special, I actually tend to think more about Elliot Kipchoge himself, the runner and, and, and his approach to the race, because he was, he's an interesting guy. He's the Olympic champion and he's, he's got a very, very strong, he's very quiet and soft-spoken, but he has a very strong presence. You can really tell he has just full of, of self-belief and uh and and like the first time i met him was about six months or five months before the race and he had just run a half marathon a little bit under an hour and so i was asking him okay you're you, in a few months you're going to try and run a marathon you know twice the distance at basically the same pace how are you going to change your training to make that happen and his answer was uh you know i'm not going to change my training the training will be the same but my mind will be different and at the time my, my thought was well that you know that sounds like a terrible plan like you, you you're going to have to do more than just change your mind but it was it became pretty clear over time that, that this was something he was really you know pretty sincere about that that he really viewed the mental preparation as as a crucial element of this whole project and that he was he was deliberately and systematically trying to build up his belief that he was ready and capable of running this two hour marathon and and a lot of the research I ended up going through for my book talks about belief and self talk and things like that and I think you know like a lot of all time great athletes over the years and over the generations. Kipchoge is one of those guys who's found his own way 
or, or uh, you know, through whatever, uh, you know, method, I, I don't know, but he's found his own way of getting to that point of, you know, really creating strong self-belief and, and positive self-talk. Well, that comes into the next question is, is Alex, in your preparations and in writing the book, what did you learn that kind of changed your, your conceptions or, or your perceptions about, about running? I mean, if you've been, been a runner your career and you ran at a very high level, run from the Canadian national team, you know, what did you learn in doing this that, that has kind of changed your thought about maybe how we approach sports? Well, you know, the funny thing is the biggest lessons I learned are things that people were telling me 20 years ago. Um, you know, we had, when I was in university, we had a, a sports psychologist, uh, who taught us things about, you know, negative thought stopping and motivational self-talk. Some of these ideas that have been out there for a long time. And we, we just sort of dismissed it. We didn't really take it seriously or, or, or try and really implement it in our, in our training or racing. Um, and, you know, coming full circle, going through this, this idea of, okay, well, I'm a, I'm an, you know, I'm an empiricist. I, I, I want to know what we can really measure and what, you know, what the scientists say. And so going through all the science and then coming out the other side and just, and, re, and sort of come, having the conclusion that, okay, what really matters is self-belief and the brain and say, oh, wait, that's what they were telling me uh, 20 years ago. So you could say in a, in a sense that, okay, Alex, you're an idiot. You should have just believed, uh, you know, the sports psychologist 20 years ago. But for me, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of all about evidence and trying to understand how things work and why things work. And so I now have a much greater appreciation for the, the, the role of the mind in achieving peak performance. This doesn't mean I think it's all in the head, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, that you can just sort of will yourself to a great performance uh, if you believe strongly enough that ultimately you, you have to have the tools and you have to do the work. Um, but in terms of the, the the sort of final margins where you're really trying to push your limits, um, I've, I'm, I'm much more of a convert to this to this idea that that self belief really matters. It's interesting that you're talking about the mind. Is you're you're talking about this, and I'm reminded of a friend. I haven't thought about this for a while, but she ran her fastest marathon a few years ago. Right as she was getting, you know, going through you know, the process of divorcing her husband, and you know, she talked about, you know, kind of how cathartic it was for her to run. You know, she's like, it was. She's like, I didn't feel like I was trained for it. You know, I just, I, I was signed up for it, so I did it. But she's like, I ran my best time. Do you think? I mean, how does that tie into what you've learned about the mind? Because I'm, I'm thinking there's a connection there that whether she was focused on what she was going through personally, or whether she became more focused on the race, that allowed her mind to kind of disassociate. You know, how does that, you know, listen to that? I mean, is that something that, that kind of ties into the mind-body, you know, performance connection? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, uh, you know, it's a cliche to say, but sometimes uh, we're holding ourselves back in ways that we don't even realize by, by you know, focusing too much on, you know, how hard it is or, or what our limitations are. And maybe a distraction uh, just kind of it clears the mind and allows you to to run the way your body's capable of. I mean, I have a one of the stories that I have have sort of thought a lot about lately, uh, in, in terms of trying to understand where my interest in this topic comes from. Is that I had my my biggest breakthrough uh, as a track athlete when I was in third year university. Um, the 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 timekeeper who was calling out the splits uh, at every lap, he he must have started his watch wrong because he was his splits were off by about three seconds, hmm. which I didn't discover till after the race. But so he he tricked me into thinking I was having an amazing race, like way faster than I'd ever run before. And as a result, 
I was like, oh, this is a great race. Don't waste this. Just put your head down and run. And I ran a huge personal best after I'd been stuck at it. I'd been trying to break four minutes for four years. I'd been stuck at 401 or 402 for 1500 meters. And, and that day I ran 352, wow. which I attribute almost entirely to the fact that this guy took me into a different place mentally instead of instead of going through there and thinking okay i need to run 32 seconds for every 200 meters am i on pace for four i'm oh no i'm not gonna make four again oh he he took me into a place where i was like whoa i'm way ahead of place but i feel good just don't even worry about the splits just run and so i was able to kind of get out of my own way and so maybe that maybe something like that is what happened to your friend that she was I, able to well, I love, think about it. Sorry, I love that story because, yeah, if you think – and that just shows that, that power of positive thought because how many people would say if they heard their first split, oh, no, you know, you, you get that negative self-talk. But if you get that first split and you're three seconds under what you thought you should be, all of a sudden you're like, hell, yeah, I'm doing this. And you you kick it up a pace. And that sounds – was that your experience? Yeah. It's, you know, I had I had kind of two conflicting thoughts, which one of which was like the the, the rational part of my mind was like, oh, boy, you're in trouble. You've gone out way too fast. But the other part of my mind was like, but it feels good. You feel good. And after, <laughs> after it happened in the second lap, you're like, really fast, but feels good. This, I mean, something good is happening. And the, you know, the third 200-meter split after that, I was just like, okay, stop listening to the splits because something great is happening and you don't want to waste this. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't think – I'm sure I wouldn't have run that race that day with, without – that sort of deception that got me into a different jolted me into the different headspace and and the, the you know the the postscript is that i never never went back i i never struggled to break four minutes again and in fact i got faster in my next race and the race after that like so once i j- discovered that i was capable of these faster times it's like i never looked back so uh, you know those, those are the kinds of, that that experience i think is is really one of the things that seeded my, that ended up sort of driving me on this quest to write this book, because I was still trying to figure out how did that happen? How could that possibly happen? Four years of being stuck at a plateau and then someone reads me the wrong splits and I become a different runner. That, that's So if we really want to improve our performance, we need to have somebody lying in our ear during a, <laughs> during a race. You're doing well, great. Did, you're, you're running a sub did, three mile marathon. D- deception is a powerful tool. There's a whole kind of body of literature looking at the effect of what happens if you give people the wrong time or if you give them clocks that run slow or there's there's one study where they gave people uh they they, they set the thermometers wrong so that, the, that these cyclists had they were cycling in a hot room but instead of saying like 90 the, th- the thermometer said 80 and they had rectal thermometers that were also rigged to, to read artificially low temperatures and they performed way better now it doesn't mean that again heat's not all in their head heat has real effects but part of how we respond to heat is is kind of fear-based based on how we expect to feel. And if you trick people into thinking that they're cooler than they are, they can actually perform better in the heat. I'm just kind of stuck on, on trying to cycle the rectal thermometer, but we won't go into the, <laughs> into the mechanics of that. Now, to, to start wrapping it up, I mean, you came to my attention, Alex, you, you had tweeted something about fascia, and in your book you write about the human machine. What was, you know, describe fascia a little bit and, and what kind of, what is it and, and why did you kind of, what did you learn about it? What kind of piqued your interest with it? Uh, well, I mean, you probably have, a, are, are better able to explain than I am about, you know, connective tissue and, and, and how it's part of, you know, the body is more complicated than, than we've traditionally thought where it's just, you know, muscles and heart and lungs, but it's, uh, you know, over the course of not just writing my book, but of writing, uh, you know, articles about injury prevention and things like that, 
uh, I've definitely come to a, a greater appreciation of, of the role that things like fascia can play in, in staying healthy and also performing. And that's in, 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 and I'm going to go into that for a little bit on in the postlude. So for listeners, if you want to learn a little bit more about fascia, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit after the conversation. And the reason why I asked that, Alex, it may or may not have been a fair question. I apologize about that. But I wanted to kind of – I was just trying to, to, to garner like what you as a – and I'm not, I don't mean to put you in a consumer standpoint, but you're not you're not somebody nitty gritty teaching this at, you know at the college level like I have, or teaching it internationally at workshops. You write about it for the consumer, and and so what you know to, to wrap up, I guess my last question is, what's been your biggest surprise as a writer the last few years? You know, you probably went into your writing career with a certain kind of mindset about exercise, and what has been like your biggest change? What have you learned the most, or? What's really changed your perception of exercise or as a as writing as a writer for outdoor or sorry outside magazine? Got to get the name right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I would say that you know for me the biggest change in my my approach now compared to when I started writing about this topic maybe ten years ago, uh, it's been a gradual evolution towards increasing simplicity. That uh, you know getting too lost in the weeds about. You know, whether you should be at 75% VO2 max or 78% VO2 max and whether you should do 12 reps or 10 reps and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, whether, you know, dietary stuff too, that uh, not that this stuff isn't real and doesn't have an effect, but for most people, it's like step zero is, you know, get exercise, <laughs> uh, you know, I do, you know, three or more days a week, uh, work up a sweat, uh, you know, uh, make yourself uncomfortable, ideally a little bit. Um, and so I've, I, I used to, I used to get kind of excited chasing every new study that purported to show, uh, you know, a performance benefit for some new workout or some new supplement. And these days I'm much more focused on the bigger patterns the you know, getting the basics right, as opposed to sweating the details. So that's, that's the, the biggest evolution. Um, in, ter in terms of just the biggest surprise, I would say in writing my book, I have a chapter on oxygen and free diving and stuff like that. I, I just, as a random factoid, I'll put out there that the world record for breath holding with no tricks, no like pre-breathing oxygen or anything like that is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. And that still blows my mind. Wow. I think I just, I just hurt my jaw dropping on the floor. I mean, that 11 minutes, whoa, that's insane. And why would somebody, I mean... What's why would why should somebody pick it up? You you you've dropped some little nuggets in there. What would be what would be the like for a reader for somebody picking up your book? Why should somebody you know what would they get out of it? What's going to be their their walk away going? Whoa, that was cool. Yeah, I I hope it would be with that people would walk away from the book with uh, uh you, you know a, a, on the on the sort of simplest level an appreciation that. Limits aren't absolute. They're not mathematical. But the limits we that that feel physical to us are mediated by the brain, which means they're negotiable. But that you know that's that's a simple message. That if you want you, that you want more than that from reading a whole book, and I would say what I hope people will walk away with is is an appreciation for the incredible sort of diversity of human limits. What it's like to hold your breath underwater, like these eleven minute thirty five second breath holders, to climb a mountain, to to try and lift a car off a pinned baby. All these different ways that we try and approach our limits, and the different ways that our bodies and brains work together to to create those limits. I think it's been fascinating for me, certainly, to kind of get a sense of you know, how, uh, all the different ways that the body and brain work together to define our limits. That's cool. Well, Alex, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you 
And, you know, I really I appreciate, you know, we kind of had to go back and forth a little bit. I had a little surprise trip to Asia in there. And, and so it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure speaking with you. How can people follow you? Obviously, you write for Outside Magazine. Do you have uh, how do you how do you put your information out? If it, anybody wants to learn more, what's the next step they should take? Uh, probably easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Sweat Science. Uh, I do have a website, which is alexhutchinson.net, that has a little bit more uh, background. But uh, Twitter, Sweat Science, is where to find my latest articles and just random stuff that I'm finding interesting. And I'm going to have a couple links to a couple of your um, outside columns down below. And then I'm also going to have a link to to Endure you know, through Amazon down below as well. And just final note here, it's funny you said that thing about discomfort. One of the things I tell personal trainers or people who learn to be personal trainers is that our job is to help our clients become comfortable being uncomfortable because being uncomfortable is the only time we're going to make changes in your body. So I love the fact that this is our first time talking and you you hit the nail on the head with that. So and it's been great. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and getting to know you a little bit. Thanks so much, Pete. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to, to, to have this conversation. I appreciate the interest. As a podcast host, one of the things I'm completely guilty of is sticking with kind of people I know and people within my immediate circle, whether that's professional or social. And one of the things I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to look outside of, of my immediate circle to get different viewpoints, to get different perspectives. And that's really what, what drew me to, to Alex was, like I said, I, I hadn't heard of him before. No offense, Alex. I hadn't heard of him before. And if I'd read his column, I hadn't paid attention to the byline. But I saw a couple of things he tweeted out that caught my eye. And I did a little, when I saw his bio, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Somebody who's a national team runner and has a PhD in physics. So I reached out to him and, and that's how I had him on. I think it's, you know, even if you're not an endurance athlete, it's really cool to hear how people are training at a high level. It's funny. I listen to a, a sports talk show on a radio on a regular basis. And there's always this talk about steroids and, you know, well, athletes are cheating. Take that aside for a second. The training te- te- techniques that we have now, you know, what Alex covers in his book by what the Nike, you know, the Nike Institute is doing. That stuff is that could be considered it is performance enhancement. It's a science of performance enhancement. We are understanding a lot more about how the human body performs than ever before. So athletes competing in 2018, 2019, 2020 have a distinct advantage over athletes that were competing even 10, 15, 20 years ago. And let's keep in mind, folks, that even until the 1970s and early 1980s, professional athletes did not train year round. Once upon a time, this is 100% true, I'm trying to reach out to a couple of the uh, original strength coaches. You know, it was thought that strength training, weight training would slow down athletes. It would re- reduce their athleticism. You know, now no, any athlete worth his salt, his or her salt, are training year-round. And not just training, they, they, they're doing nutrition, they're doing recovery, they're doing all sorts of interesting things. And, and so to have somebody like Alex, who has a background in physics, a PhD in physics, to take a look at this, I mean, Endure is a fascinating book. I definitely recommend picking up. It's a fun read. It's an easy read. He does a great job of talking about it in a way that's easy to understand. So whether you're a runner or you just enjoy training, I definitely recommend picking it up. And I'll have a link down to it below in my show notes. So I really want to say thank you for stopping by All About Fitness. And for those of you who've emailed in, whether you've had guest ideas, I'm still going through that. You know, we're a relatively small operation here, so it might take me a little while to get back to you. Know that I'm going through that. I am listening to you. I'm trying to get different guests on. 
I got a couple of my next couple of podcasts though are with some seriously heavy hitters. And actually, you know, the next couple of podcasts are returning guests. And I'm not gonna let the let the cat out of the bag too soon, but I was really honored to have the opportunity to follow up with them and speak with them and got some great, great information from them. So Alex was a lot of inf- a lot of good information, a fun conversation. It was really, you know, a lot of fun getting to know him. I'm now following him and I'm gonna be reading, you know, sweat science on a regular basis. Because it's a different point of view, and it's a point looking at fitness from a slightly different angle. And that's what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to bring you as much information about fitness and exercise as I can. If you're enjoying All About Fitness, please take a moment to give us a rating. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, want to give me some show guest ideas, please shoot me an email, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. It might take me a couple days to get back to you, but I will get back to you. You can follow me on Twitter, PeteMC underscore fitness. That's PeteMC underscore fitness. And you can catch me on Instagram at PeteMcCall underscore fitness. That's PeteMcCall underscore fitness on Instagram. Thanks for stopping by, and I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.